It's that name that as it ends in the chorus that gives us hope and brings joy to heaven. Amen? And I think it interesting that we not forget that, that it is Jesus Christ that gives us our hope. There's so many things that seem like they can go wrong in life and turn our world upside down, but the one thing that is ever constant and never changing is Jesus. Think about that for a moment. Everything in life could become, there are stages in life. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but we're preparing. Uh, Jade is eight, she'll be nine this year. And uh, I've already started preparing myself for that 13, to put that teen behind there. You say, well, no, that's a little premature. Well, possibly, but I'm, one of, I'm a planner, and I know none of you would ever consider me a planner. Amen. I don't, I don't plan ahead or anything. Uh, it's funny at work when we have to put in our PTO days and uh, I'm asking in October, can I go ahead and put in 2020s because I've had them since February. I already know what we're doing next year on our calendar and all those things. So, uh, but no, I'm not a planner. Anyway, uh, uh, and I'm planning for that time. And so there are seasons in life that bring about change as our children get older. As we get older, there's retirement, and then there's changes in job, and then there's just changes at home, uh, whether it's the introduction of a new child or the exit of a child, or maybe it's the introduction of some, uh, whatever it is. Life is all about change, amen? But there's one thing that's never changing, and it's the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. It's a constant. It's always there. Always when we're ready, always when we need it, we can trust in Christ. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He says, I am the Lord, I change not. And the hope that we had the day that we got saved is the same hope that we have even today. It's the hope that we'll have that we'll carry to our grave with us. And it's the hope that we have for eternity. That's Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is all about. Now, tonight, I want you to bring your midweek messenger with you. I said we would do this on Wednesday, but Wednesday's May 1st. And so we start a new month. And so in our series of life and godliness as we're building, we started with faith. That's the foundation in February, right? And then we looked at virtue in March. And here we are in April, and we're ending with knowledge. And in the month of knowledge, we've, we've looked at the word knowledge. We've looked at the knowledge of God. We've looked at the, what we believe as far as what the Word of God teaches us about some doctrinal, just a few doctrinal things on Wednesday night. And so tonight, we're going to finish up our study on dispensations. And so we're going to uh, close on that kingdom study that we've been talking about the past two weeks or so uh, on Wednesday. We'll do that tonight. And Wednesday this week, we'll introduce our new topic for the month, which will be temperance, because we have to add temperance to our virtue, temperance to our knowledge. And we're going to look at biblical temperance, and we're going to study that throughout the month of May, and uh, uh, everything will build on top of one another, Lord willing. And of course, this, if the Lord changes plans, we're going to go with His direction instead of mine. Amen? But uh, I believe that's what the Lord's laid on our heart. So this morning, as we are closing up our Sunday mornings in knowledge, I wanted us to close it being the week after Resurrection Sunday, which it, it feels like Resurrection Sunday was a month ago, doesn't it? That's what we talked about in teen, teen Sunday school this morning. It feels like Easter was several weeks and weeks and weeks ago, and it was just last Sunday. We were all dressed up, and we were all outside taking pictures, and some of you had uh, uh, lunches planned, some of you hunted eggs, some of you ate eggs, you know, whatever, amen? But uh, as we're coming to now the, la the Sunday after the resurrection, last Sunday morning we looked at the resurrection's true, now what? And we looked at the... Uh, uh, biblical, one of the proofs that we have from Luke 24 that we know that the resurrection really happened. Amen. But now I want us to look in a little more detail at the gospel. Now some the, the three points that we have we've talked about before and we'll get to that in just a moment. But in 1 Corinthians, the theme of 1 Corinthians is unity. The theme of 1 Corinthians is unity. Now if you'll remember so many years ago, I guess it's been about two 
two years now since we've been in Corinthians and we studied out this book chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and it starts off addressing certain things. And I'm going to give you very quickly through these 16 chapters, I'm going to just give you the highlights of what the chapters are. Chapters 1 through 4, if you're taking notes this morning, deal with their division over identity. If you remember, what was it? I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, Apollos, I am of Christ. And they were divided within the church because of who they identified with. And so there was a division over identity in chapters 1 through 4. Chapters 5 through 8, we see a division over separation. A division over separation. And Paul's having to address some unclean things that are going on in the church here at Corinth. And so there's division over separation. Chapters 9 and 10, there is a division over liberty. Paul addresses their division over liberty. Remember, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is where we learn that all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. Can we do whatever we want in Christ? And I may be thinking of, I may be quoting the verse in Romans, but the concept is taught in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, this division over liberty. There are things that we can do as Christians, and we're not going to lose our salvation. Anything that we do as a Christian doesn't cause us to lose our salvation. Why? Because you and I didn't earn our salvation. Amen. We did nothing to earn it. We can do nothing to lose it. Amen? That's a promise from Scripture. You say, well, you're telling me that you could go out as a Christian, you could shoot someone in cold blood and still die and go to heaven? Absolutely. But now someone that's living for Christ would not do those things. Amen. But that's why Paul teaches us, or Scripture teaches us rather, through the writings of Paul, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. And so we have a division over liberty. Chapters 11 through 14, you have a division over government and order. Government and order. Chapter 15 is interesting because it's the longest chapter, if I'm not mistaken, in 1 Corinthians, having 58 verses. And here, Paul addresses the unity in the gospel. The unity, this gospel unity. Now this is not new material. We talk about the gospel a lot. We talk about unity. But where we're at in our knowledge month, I believe it edifying for us to reaffirm the purpose of the church. As Christians, we're to be unified. But does that mean that anything goes? No. Listen, there's, something, there's some things that Calvary Baptist Church will never do. We will never survey the community to find out what type of church the community wants. We're not going to do that. You want to know why? Because we're not here to appease the community. Amen. We're here to tell the community that they need to appease God by accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Amen. So, I, And I don't mean this harshly, and it can come across as harsh if not understood in the context, but I don't care what the community is looking for in a church. As a church, I want to know what God wants. Amen? Does that make sense? And, and again, I, I hope that's not coming across as militant. I'm not trying to be that way. I'm trying to make us understand that our purpose here is unity, but we have to be unified in the right things. You say, well, what about, uh, you know, and there are things that are not necessarily sinful or non-sinful that we could talk about. And a lot of times when people start those kind of surveys uh, uh, in those movements and start petitioning the community, they want to know what type of music do you want in church and what time, how long do you want the preacher to talk and what would you like to wear to church. Those are the things that people are usually asked in those type of movements. And here's the wonderful thing about it. None of that matters. None of it matters. I heard it said one time that, oh, I love our church because someone could walk in and ripped up jeans and a purple mohawk and they'd just feel so welcome and loved. And my first response was, well, they'd feel welcome and loved at our church too. That's the way church is supposed to be. People come through those doors. They know the love of Christ. Why? Because what we're unified in isn't our own preferences as to what people should look like, act like, smell like, talk like. 
we're unified in one thing, and it's addressed here in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, we're unified in multiple things, but the main thing we're going to look at this morning is the unity of the gospel, obviously by the title, amen, gospel unity. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1, let's stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand by which also ye are saved. If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and that He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that He was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all He was seen of me, also of one, as, also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles." that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labor more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask for your help. Lord, we pray that you would help us. We, we thank you first and foremost for salvation. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your only begotten Son to die for us and that he was allowed to be crucified and his life given. And then he placed, we, you allowed that his body be placed in that borrowed tomb. And then on the third day he rose, conquering death, hell, and the grave of his own volition. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for it. Lord, as we think of the wonderful things that you have allowed for us to have as a free people, we also must ask for your forgiveness for where we have failed you, where we have not trusted in you, where we have not been unified in your gospel, where we have not looked to you, where maybe possibly we've been lazy in our attempts at Christianity. God, we beg your forgiveness. Lord, we are not worthy to approach Your wonderful throne. But God, we approach boldly because of Your Son. Lord, we ask now that You would bless the reading of Your Word. Lord, You promised that Your Word would not return unto You void, and we beg of You that You would fulfill that promise this morning as we preach these next few moments and teach on the Gospel. Lord, I pray that You would allow these words to fall onto ready hearts and ready minds. If there be one here that does not know You as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, if there be one here that is wayward, maybe one that is not living to their fullest potential in the unity of the Gospel that You have given us, I pray that You would convict hearts this morning. Lord, I pray that You would use the old feeble words of this preacher to do what only you can do. Bless us now. Remove all distractions. Open hearts and minds to receive what is being preached, what is being taught. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing in honor of the reading of the Word of God. We've reviewed the theme from two years ago. We've reviewed the divisions that are addressed in the Scripture. Now, I want us to be reminded of the Gospel. Now, we have been here several times, but repetition is the key to learning. Amen? Repetition in the Bible is God's volume control. Repetition in the pulpit is the key to learning. And they both work hand in hand. Amen? And so I want us to understand number one, and first of all, this isn't the main points to see this morning, but I want us to see the gospel needs to be declared. Look at verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this may sound familiar, that's because I've said it before, amen? If it doesn't sound familiar, you were sleeping last time. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I what? Preached unto you. 
which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. Now verse 1, is pat. we could spend days just in verse 1. This gospel needs to be declared. It's the gospel that is to be preached. What, is the word pre what does the word preach mean? Very briefly, it means to proclaim. Amen. That's what it means. You say, well, there ought not be women preachers. No, 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 there ought not be women pastors. There's a reason for that. We're not going to unpack all that this morning. We have it in clear Scripture. Just very broad and basic. I don't know how a woman could be the husband of one wife. Now, the further we stray from God in the 21st century, the more that looks like they're trying to make that a possibility. Amen? Unfortunately. But to say that women can't proclaim the gospel is a misnomer, because you can, and you're commanded to. All of us have a responsibility to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? It's the gospel that was preached, that was proclaimed unto us at salvation. It's the gospel that is received. And then after salvation, all from verse 1, it's the gospel that we stand upon. What is my faith built on? Jesus Christ. That's it. Not my own works. But by His grace and His mercy. So the gospel must be declared, preached, received, stood upon. We're saved by the gospel. Verse 2, by which also ye are saved. If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Now, stop. I want us to take note. A lot of people will use this verse and say, well, see, you're saved if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. Notice, this is a parenthetical statement. Notice the punctuation, amen. How many of you just love English? Anybody? Like three of you. Okay, all right, good. The rest of you are with me. Mary just got this look on her face of anger as soon as I said the word English, amen. As soon as I said the words, it's just scowl because all of a sudden she remembered, oh yeah, I got school tomorrow. All right, and you got homework, I'm sure. No, you got all that done. Oh yeah, there's homework still. All right, that's what I figured. Miss Karen, she has homework. All right, here we go. By which also ye are saved, unless ye have believed in vain. That's where the verse would pick up and drop off. If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, is referencing how we are saved. How are we saved? By the gospel, not by our works. The only way that you're not saved is if you have believed in vain. Believed in vain. What does that sound like? What does, what does believing in vain look like? Well, I guess I'm going to give Jesus a try, but if it don't work out, I'm doing my own thing. That's not salvation. You can't try on Jesus like you try on a new shirt. Amen? Amen. Decide, well, Jesus didn't work for me. I'm going to return this. It doesn't work that way. Accepting Christ as your Savior is a lifelong decision to follow Him. It's a lifelong decision that you're going to trust in him. It's a lifelong decision that He will be your hope. He will be your guide. And you cannot return Him whether you like it or not. Amen. So, you're saved unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. Now, we've seen the Gospels to be declared. Verses 3 and 4 we've looked at many, many times. And here we have a good definition of the Gospel. How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. A lot of people love to sing about the cross. Amen? We love to sing about the cross. We like to sing about the death of Christ. But do you realize that the gospel does not hinge on the death of Christ? Many prophets and self-proclaimed gods of this world have died. And you can go and you can see where they're buried. You can see where their remains lie. But notice, the gospel doesn't end with the death of Christ. It begins there. The death of Christ is the beginning. The cross is the beginning of the gospel. Verse 4, and that He was buried. And that He was buried. You see, Christ must have been buried because it was foretold that His body would be laid in that borrowed tomb. He needed, must needs, to have been buried and placed in the tomb because it was representative of what happened to him for three days he was buried. Side note, what happens on the fourth day at death? Decay starts to set in. Christ arose before decay could affect his physical body. Notice verse 4, and he was buried 
and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The gospel defined as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the definition of the gospel begins with the cross, but it must end with a resurrected Savior. You see, the resurrection, this is what separates us from the rest of the religions of the world. Now, I've heard it said that, oh, well, there's other pagan religions that claimed that their Messiah had come and that God had come and lived among men and then He died and then He came back to life from death. But none of those instances show where He gave His life willingly. None of those beliefs state that, he, that those pagan gods died sacrificially and then went for three days buried and rose again for anything other than their own glory. You see, that's what makes Christ different. God became flesh, dwelt among men, allowed creation to crucify Him. He didn't die in a battle. He died on a cross. He didn't die because He wasn't strong enough. He died because He sacrificed His life for you and for me. He hung upon that tree. And they buried Him, laid Him in a tomb. And then on the third day, He arose to show that the resurrection is there. The resurrection gives hope. But the resurrection gives proof and validity to what we have. And that's what we looked at last week after the resurrection. We saw several things. And so you have the gospel declared. You have the gospel defined. And then, remember last week we said there are five great proofs of the resurrection. The one we looked at, one of the five, was in Luke 24 where the women came and saw and saw the, the tomb was empty and then went back. And it was the witness of these three ladies, Mary, Mary, and Joanna. Amen? These three ladies, they came back and told the disciples and they still didn't believe. But the ladies knew that the tomb was empty. And that witness is one of the five proofs that the account can't be wasn't falsified because if it was falsified, then men would have never admitted that ladies had come to tell them while the men hid scared. Amen? Think about that. Someone breaks into your home at night, men, and your wife is going... Now, I know what all of us will say. I'm ready to go. Amen? But it's the wife that's going, I think I heard something. Oh, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. Why? Because we're tired and we're lazy. Amen? Just bottom line. All right? And all the ladies said, Oh, amen. That, hey, that was your chance, ladies. That's the one time you get. All right. That's the one opportunity. All right. I see some of you, though, are kind of elbowing your husbands there. Well, what happens? If, if we get up, something happens, it was nothing. But when we retell the story... I heard that noise, I jumped right out of bed, I grabbed my baseball bat and I went looking I said, little lady, I've got it taken care of, amen? But that's not always what happens because that's us telling the story. Remember, there's always three sides to every story, yours, mine, and the truth. The only story that's accurate from the lips of the person telling it, God's. And so you see the confirmation there and those three ladies coming back to tell that the tomb was empty. One of the second is the witnesses that saw Christ after His resurrection. And that's what we just read in 1 Corinthians 15. And they were seen, verse 5, of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. So the Cephas, which is Peter, then of the twelve, then the 500, then James, and then the apostles again, and then Paul. And notice what he says, of the 500. Verse 6, of whom the greater part remain under this presence, but some are fallen asleep. What is Paul saying? He's saying that of the 500 people that saw Christ after the resurrection, a lot of them are still alive. Go ask them what they saw. Amen? So one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection is listed here in 1 Corinthians 15. Friend, you can trust God's Word. What does all of this build up to? Well, it builds up to the unity that we're to have in the gospel because it is the foundation of our very existence. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must be unified. Notice verse 11, Therefore, whether it I or they, so we preach, and so ye believe. What? The gospel. It's all about the gospel in this church age, in this age of grace. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. What does the gospel give us? Three things, three things that may sound familiar, 
But I want us to understand this. I want us to get this in this month of knowledge because the Bible gives us knowledge not just about who Christ is, but who we are and who we can trust in. And so number one, when we have a proper view of the gospel, when we are unified in the gospel, we will have a proper perspective of self. A proper perspective of self. Look at verse 9. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 9. For I am the least of the apostles. Why would Paul say this? Why would Paul consider himself the least of the apostles? Notice the rest of the verse. That am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You know what Paul said? I'm not worthy to be called an apostle of Jesus Christ because I persecuted the church. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Very quickly, Acts chapter 8. And Saul was consenting unto his death. Verse 1. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and a great lamentation, and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hauling men and women committed them to prison. What's happening? Well, we have Saul. Now, just a side note, Saul, uh, when he got saved, his name wasn't changed to Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul is the Greek name. Amen? Amen. Now, it sounds good, and good it sounds like a good preaching message to say, and God changed him so much that he changed his name from Saul to Paul. No, what was Paul? He was the apostle to the what? Gentiles. You don't have to whisper it. You can say it out loud. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, which at that point in time was what? Greek. They were Greek. Amen? And so he changed his name. Why? Because Paul was going to people that he was not a part of. He was free by nature because he was a Roman citizen born, but he was still a Jew. He was a Hebrew. And so his name was changed from Saul And he went by his Greek name, Paul. Very interesting. Amen? But here he's still known as Saul. Why? Because he's fighting the warfare of the Jew. He's persecuting the church that is coming up and preaching blasphemy that Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One. This church, this follower of Jesus, this Stephen who would go and would say that there is no other way but Jesus Christ, and it offended the Jews. Why? Because they're not looking for God come in the flesh. That's a mystery to them. Even today they're not looking for God in the flesh. They're looking for a prophet They're looking for a leader who would resemble Moses. They're not looking for a Savior like Jesus. And so you have Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, was buried and uh, died and was buried and rose again on the third day. And now all of those that have trusted in Him as their Lord and Savior, this Stephen, who by the way was a deacon, amen? He was a deacon, stoned for his beliefs, He preached Jesus Christ and Saul consented unto his death. And at the stoning of Stephen after his burial, Saul made havoc according to verse 3. Made havoc of the church. Saul would eventually receive letters to go and would be allowed to go and to arrest church members, people that proclaim Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he's on the road to Damascus and his life has changed forever. Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Now remember Acts chapter 8, what does the Bible say? Scripture says he persecuted who? According to Acts 8, the church. He made havoc, verse 3, of the church. Acts chapter 9 and verse 4, 
Well, look at verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou who? Me. Me. Notice Jesus didn't say, why persecutest thou my church? Why? Because what is the church? It's His body. He is the head, we are the body. That's what Corinthians goes on to teach us. We are the body of Christ. And so a persecution of the church is a persecution of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus says that when, He says, don't be shocked, basically. Don't be, don't marvel, don't be astonished when they persecute you, when they hate you, because they hated me first. And that's the whole process that we see happening. And so here we have Saul literally persecuting Jesus Christ. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. Not meet to be called an apostle. Paul says, I, I don't deserve to be a follower of Christ. I consented to the death of Stephen. I allowed the Jews to go and I would be present as they would go and they would pull followers of Jesus from their homes and take them to prison. I caused havoc on the church. And according to Christ Jesus, I persecuted Him. I'm not deserving. But you see, the gospel gives us self-worth. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, very quickly. The gospel helps us to understand the proper perspective of self. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. Such were some of you. Who's he writing to? The church. Notice this list of offenses. Fornicators idolaters, adulterers, effeminate. What is effeminate? Those are men who want to be women. That's what that is. Abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. You know what the Bible says? They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And when the gospel is introduced and we start to recognize who we are, Romans says, for all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. I'm an adulterer, I'm a liar, I'm a fornicator, I'm an idolater, I'm an extortioner, I'm covetous. That's who I am! Verse 11, though, brings us the hope. Such were some of you. Past tense, amen? Now, those three that like English... You already caught that. The rest of us, I had to look that up. All right? Past it. No, I didn't. I knew what that was. Such were some of you. But what are you doing as now? Washed. Sanctified. Justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You see, when the gospel enters in, we recognize who we are. We're nothing. We're not worthy. As John said, we're not worthy to unlatch his shoes, much less baptize him. That's, I'm not worthy. He's the God of gods. He's the creator of the universe. He's the light of the world. I'm not worthy to enter into his presence. But because of his sacrifice, because of the gospel, past tense, we were those things. But now we're able to be washed. Now we're able to be sanctified. We can come boldly. So the gospel unifies us because it helps every one of us to recognize a proper perspective of self, who we are. It's hard to be heady and high-minded. It's hard to be overconfident and full of self when you realize who you really are. Amen? 
Well, I'm better than that person. No, you're not. You're just better at hiding it, which makes you a better liar. Amen? Ever think about that? Oh, I'm better than they are. No, in your heart, you're filthy, you're wicked, you're backwards, you're, you're wrong. And so that just makes you a better deceiver. You're a better liar than that person who's just living it outwardly. Such were some of us. Paul says that he's not worthy, he's not meet. That's what that means. Not meet to be called an apostle. So we have a proper perspective of self. And then we have a proper perspective of strength. Verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, notice, he's not saying that I am just who I am and I'm just accepting who I am in Christ Jesus. I'm just, that's me. I am just me and I'm going to be me. No, no, no. He's already said he persecuted the church. He's the least of the apostles. He doesn't deserve to be used by God. But the apostle Paul says, by the grace of God. And we're not going to run all this down, but in the previous chapters, in chapter 10, I believe it is, we learn that definition of grace. It's that heavenly strength in time of need. It's what grace is. Remember when he says, my grace is sufficient for thee. And it's by that strength by that heavenly strength in time of need, by the grace of God, I am what I am. The least of the apostles, the chiefest of sinners, but by the grace of God, I'm washed. I'm sanctified. I'm able to live for Him. Able to be used of God. God's grace is given God's grace is one that we are not to abuse. We are to labor in. Notice the rest of verse 10. His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labor more abundantly than they all. I wrote a note here in my, as I'd print off my sermon notes and then I, I hand wrote something every once in a while as I'm reading over and praying something, you know, just thoughts come to me. And I wrote, those that have been forgiven much labor most. Those that have been forgiven much labor most. See, because when you've been forgiven and you've not done that much, at least by society standards, and especially when you grow up in a day where you're taught that you deserve everything, right? The me, the I society, iPhone, iPad, you know, you get it. You see where I'm going with that. Facebook, it's all about me, amen, YouTube. It's all about me. It's all about what I want. I deserve forgiveness. No, 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 no. You deserve hell. And so do I. We all do. Why? Because we've offended a holy God, but by the grace of God, by His strength. And that grace was given to us. And because He labored in it, that grace wasn't given in vain. I wonder how many of us have accepted the grace of God in vanity, or rather in vain, or utilized the grace of God to where it has been of none effect in the life of anyone else We've got our fire escape. Amen. Yeah, I got saved at a young age. I, I disobeyed mom and dad, but I've lived a pretty good life. I'm a pretty good Christian. To whom little is forgiven, a lot of times, the labor you get from them is the least. They don't recognize the forgiving power of God. But you ask that person that spent years worshiping self and following after maybe that bottle someone who was addicted to a substance that they never sought hope, that they were looking for hope and could never find it. And then Christ enters in and changes them completely. That's someone who's going to be on fire for God. I was thinking of Rick this morning. Thinking of Rick and what would he say? He ran from God for how many? 30 years. I've ne and, and every week leading someone to the Lord. He's trying to make up for lost time. Amen? That's what he'll tell you. Making up for, I've wasted, squandered 30 years. To whom much forgiveness is given, much labor will be given. They'll labor most. Why? Because it's a little more, think of it this way. When you grow up having everything that you need, you want for nothing, and then you get that birthday gift or that Christmas gift. Amen? And it's given to you, and then you open it up, and it's something that, you know, you probably could have gone and just bought yourself. It's no longer about the thought, amen? Well, I could have got this, I, I could have got it myself, but I appreciate you giving it to me. I'm grateful, I'll write you a thank you card, I thank you for that, and I'll get you a gift at your birthday or Christmas, because now I'm obligated to return the favor, amen? 
Because that's, that's what we do. That's why when we get older, we don't like birthdays. It's not because we're getting older. It's because we don't want to have to return the favor. That's what it is. Amen? Oh, they got me a card, and i got to write down their birthday and get them a card. Good grief. Amen? That's what we do. But when you have someone who has nothing and grew up with nothing, and desiring and wishing and looking at a better life and craving a better life and craving more and having no hope. And then all of a sudden someone comes in and says, you know what? Here's a house, here's a car, here's food. I've taken care of everything. I will be your supply. You know what that person's going to do? Everything they can to show their gratitude. So a pro proper perspective of self leads to a proper perspective of strength when we recognize who we were before Christ. Well, I got saved when I was eight years old. Yeah, and you were terrible. Amen? Amen. Don't look at me like a calf at a new gate. We'll ask your mother. How about that? Mother's Day. You bring your mom, and we're going to line them up and let them all tell stories, okay? What's going to happen? Nobody's going to invite their mom on Mother's Day. That's what's going to happen. Why? Because nobody wants stories told. Because a proper perspective of self. Well, I tried my best. But here's the wonderful thing Scripture teaches us. When you do your best, it's still nothing. Why? Because the gospel is not about us. It's about Christ. It's not about our strength. It's about His strength. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And then verse 11, we'll have a proper perspective of Scripture. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believed. As we come to a close, we learn that it's not about the messenger, the preacher. It's not about the apostles. It's not about the deacons. It's not about the Sunday school teacher. It's about the message. Amen. It's about Christ and Him crucified. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Because this is a verse we've looked at, and we'll, we'll quote every once in a while, but I want us to understand something. In light of what's happening, remember the church at Corinth, how did it start off, their divisions? It started off with their divisions. Their divisions because of who led who to the Lord. I'm of Christ, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. We will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reach not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ." Not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope when your faith is increased that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. To what? Preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. And not to boast in other man's line of things made ready to our hand. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Now there's a lot here to unpack, and we've not gone through 2 Corinthians. Maybe the Lord will allow us in the near future to go through this book and to kind of finish up our study on Corinthians. We finished 1 Corinthians, and that took about a year and a half, so we'll look at 2 Corinthians later on as the Lord allows. But the principle that's being taught here is the fact that Scripture is teaching us that we're not to compare the work that we have been dealt a measure of with other men's work that they've been dealt a measure of. Because what happens? I'll just give you a big fat for instance. Amen? Personal illustration. I heard a preacher say that Facebook is one of the worst things that could have happened for preachers because this is what it, it is aided in the depression of society. 
What do you mean by that? Because what happens on social media? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against social media. Anybody that says they're against it, they really have, there's, there's not a valid reason subject, objectively for everyone to not have it. It's just a personal thing, and that's okay. So I'm not against it. I'm not saying that if you don't have it, you're a bum, or if you do have it, you're a bum. What I'm saying is, if you have it, we need to learn how to use it for the glory of God. Amen? But what has happened is, we never post pictures of ourselves when we've done wrong or when we're terrible, Right? We post when things are going great. Now, sometimes we'll post and we'll rant, and then what happens? A few days later, we feel like we need to go delete it, right? I, don't, I can't tell you how many times I've started to post something and reply to something on Twitter and then just deleted it and canceled it and backed out. Why? Because it's better just to do this than to ruin my testimony. Amen? It's better just to do that than to ruin my testimony. But what happens in society? We have teenage girls that are growing up and seeing the lives of other teenage girls and they look like they're well put together. They don't know that their dad beats them. They don't know that their mom's a bum and hooked on drugs. All they see is the good things. And so what do they start doing? Well, look what that person's doing. Look what they have. I have to one-up them. I have to better them. I have to show that I can keep up. Same thing happens in ministry. I see it all the time. This is, a, this is a discussion that we've actually had in a group of ministry friends that, that, are, that, that are up to about 1,500 now. Pastors and deacons in this ministry group. And what do they talk about? Different things. But how society has put the pressure that if you don't have the megachurch or if you don't have the cool look or if you don't have the biggest in the community... And what are we doing? Exactly what Paul says wasn't wise. Amen. Comparing ourselves amongst ourselves, comparing the measure that God has given us to work. Do you realize God has given you a measure of work to labor? And you're supposed to labor in that field. That's your responsibility. Where God has planted you, where God has placed you, that is where you're to labor. But notice, so often in society we look amongst ourselves and we go, well, that person's ministry is bigger and this person's ministry is wealthier. And this person's ministry is more charismatic. And this person's job that they have, they, they seem to be able to win more people. And this person, and what are we doing? We're comparing ourselves amongst ourselves. Instead of looking at the job God has given us, what's the job He's given us? The gospel. Some of us aren't planted in big cities. Some of you work jobs where every person you work with claims to be a Christian. Right? Some of you have family members where you're blessed because every person in your family claims to know Christ as your Savior. And so then whenever the message comes up that we need to be a witness, we need to share the gospel, we feel bad because we feel like we've been lacking and we start to compare ourselves with other people and we go, well, they're at least handing out tracts and they're doing this. You need to focus on your field. Amen. The measure that God has given you. Why? Because it's not about you. It's about Him. So what's our responsibility? To be unified in the gospel. So what is our goal? Unify our goal. The goal of our unity is the gospel. What is the unity of our prayer? Ephesians chapter 6, we're, we're done. Ephesians 6, we'll finish here. What is my goal for our church that will be unified? Now, I don't think we're divided. Amen? We don't deal with a lot of divisions here. We're going to be unified in doctrine. That's, that's a given. We've talked about that a lot. But the foundation of our unification is the gospel. And if we're not going out and sharing the gospel, then we have failed the foundation of our unification. And so we're going to be unified in doctrine, yes, but we have to have something to build upon, and that is the gospel Gospel, then doctrine. Why? Because without the gospel, we are spiritually dead. We cannot know spiritual things, and therefore doctrine is irrelevant to a lost person. So we need to be unified in the gospel. So that's our goal. Our goal in unity is the gospel. Now, Ephesians chapter 6. What is our goal in prayer? To be unified. We need to be unified in prayer. Ephesians chapter 6 is a very well-known passage of Scripture to anybody that's been in church for any amount of time because even if you don't know the passage, 
you know what it's talking about as soon as you hear it, the armor of God. Anybody that's been to church any amount of time knows about the armor of God, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit, right? The breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, loins girt about with truth, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, because only the gospel can bring peace. But I want us to look at verse 18. After, verse 17, after the armor, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So there's our call to prayer. Why? Because we need to talk to our commander. If we're in an army and we don't seek advice from the general on how we're to war the warfare, then we have no idea how to fight properly, right? That's the picture that's given in taking the armor of God. Who is our commander? Who is our general? Who is our king? Jesus. Jesus Christ. Where do we go to learn what is next in line for our growth so that we can fight the good fight? The Word of God. Amen? But notice, prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication. Verse 19, this was Paul's specific prayer request, and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. You, you, you know what I think is interesting about this verse? He constantly asked the church to pray for him, that he may speak boldly. But notice, it wasn't so that he could win fights. It wasn't so that he could proclaim what he thought was right. Amen? Well, we're post-trib, we're pre-trib, we're mid-trib, whatever, all the tribs. Amen? Trib, 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 trib. We're, we're that. That's not, what he, that's not what he wanted to proclaim boldly. What did he want to proclaim boldly? The mystery of the gospel. Why does he call it a mystery? Because lost people don't know the gospel. Lost people haven't received the gospel. People are dying and going to hell all around us. And the gospel's a mystery to them. Do you know there's people that think they're going to heaven that are going to go to hell? Why do they think they're going to heaven? Because they're good people. They think they're good people anyway. They think they've lived a good life. Some people are going to die and go to hell, and they think they're going to heaven because they've been baptized. Baptism never saved anybody. It just hasn't. So well, that's harsh. That's mean. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If any man come to the Father, how do we have to get to Him? Through Christ. It's not through our works. It's through Christ. And so we need to be praying as we are preparing. Why? Because we're in a war. Not a war of opinions. Okay, we're not talking about social justice. The social justice fights and the wars going on with all of that and all of these lib movements and rights movements, that's not what we're talking about. None of that matters to me. You don't care about equal rights? No. What do I care about? Their soul liberty. Their salvation. So what are we going to do? We're going to put on the armor. We didn't even look at it, but we mentioned some of it. We're going to be unified in our goal, which is the gospel, and we're going to be unified in our prayer, which is going to be the gospel. That's our foundation. Every head bowed, every eye closed.